we're continuing our study this morning of the holiness of sexuality and specifically today considering some questions related to sexual identity. And that's particularly difficult uh, because these issues are very, very complex and uh, I couldn't possibly hope to unpack all the particulars uh, in, a, in, a, in a message, a single message, and uh, I don't know that this is the right venue to do that anyway. But um, usually when we talk about these things, we, we have a tendency, uh, no matter what point on the uh, political or ideological spectrum we're coming from, we have a tendency to oversimplify the issue. We make a lot of generalizations. Uh, culturally, we've sort of replaced uh, intellectual discussion and argument with, uh, you know, pithy quotes and memes. And we've kind of applied this to everything in the era of social media. Um, and I think in some ways, for all of us, that behavior is kind of a hall pass that we've issued to ourselves uh, for a conversation that nobody really wants to have. Because it it's a complicated conversation. We know what we think, we know what we feel about some of these issues, and very often we have very little interest in the facts, very little interest in reason, very little interest in listening. And because we've not been very good at listening, the culture offers us an orthodoxy of human sexuality that's really built on a crumbling foundation. And I say, I use the term orthodoxy because it really is at this point more religious faith than anything else. We have adopted points of view, certain ideologies as a culture that are really not founded on anything except somebody's opinion at some point. And the church, and Christianity, because we've not done a very good job of listening we often have a tendency to offer a lot of false piety and not very much compassion. And so as we kind of make our way through this, this morning, I, I hope that we can, uh, can find a, a, a healthy path through this uh, dialogue. There's many aspects to the conversation that we probably should be having in our culture, far more than I can cover today. And so chosen to focus on three common deceptive philosophies that sort of emerge within the culture. This is by no means going to cover all the particulars, and so if there's something uh, specific that you, you uh, want to hear more about or want a question about, um, uh, I want my door's open to you. I want you to know that. My primary purpose is simply, again, to focus our attention on the biblical view. What does scripture have to say about these things? And so I focused um, this morning on some deceptive philosophies that I think are underlying flaws in the conversation that we've been having in Western culture. And the first is this. Sexual desire, expression, and gratification are central to human identity. One of the things that we need to understand is that these buzzwords and these ideas, these concepts and ideologies that we, uh, that we use so frequently today didn't exist a few decades ago. 
They've all been created very recently. And so in terms of the grander human conversation over history, these ideologies that we accept as being real things, uh, nobody had these terms. Nobody had these ideas. Nobody had these concepts. They have cropped up, and they seem to dominate the culture now. But even that is fairly localized. It's primarily within Western culture and cultures heavily influenced by Western culture that we find uh, this terminology being used. Other parts of the world are not nearly as obsessed with the idea of sexual identity as we are. We really, in America in particular, sort of take it for granted that our desires and our attractions define us as people, that they are an intrinsic part of our identity. Let's consider the ramifications of that for a minute. Really what we're saying is what I desire, what I want, is who I am. That's really sort of the cultural orthodoxy. My sexuality then is my identity, and because it's my identity, whatever expression it takes is inherently moral because it would be immoral to deny my identity. Problem is, nobody actually believes this. Nobody in their right mind actually believes this. I can desire to eat the entire family pack of Oreos in one setting. I have every confidence that my desire will see me all the way through to the last Oreo. But no amount of desire makes it a good idea. Despite what Casey would say. No amount of desire is going to make that a good idea. We have, uh, if we apply the orthodoxy of modern culture, then essentially what we're saying is what you want is who you are, and who you are is inherently healthy, therefore what you want is inherently healthy. But everybody recognizes that some desires are simply bad. Men, almost all men, struggle with lust. There's some men that don't struggle with lust. They're just slaves to lust. They're so busy giving in to whatever attractions they have that they, they don't have time to be struggling with them. But the reality is we could be attracted to things that we have to say no to. All of us who are married have the capacity to be attracted to someone who is not our spouse. But we shut that down. We don't indulge that because if we indulge that, that would be hurtful to our spouse, be hurtful to our families, ultimately be self-destructive to ourselves. We recognize that that desire is not a good desire. And so we struggle with bad desires. We deny ourselves certain gratification because we recognize that those things are, in fact, unhealthy. When I was working full-time as a counselor, I, I counseled a young woman who had become obsessed with the idea that the abandonment that she was feeling in her marriage relationship would be resolved if she initiated an affair with a coworker in her office. 
I counseled a young man who was attending concerts and going to the most crowded parts of the concert so that he could rub up against girls and grope them. I counseled a young man who was sexually attracted to very young children. Imagine if we applied this ethos and we said, all right, your desire is in fact your identity. This is who you are. And you can't deny who you are. That would be unhealthy. How broken do we become when we play this game? Paul says to us in Romans 7, he says, I know the, that good itself does not dwell in me, that it is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. It's kind of a tongue twister, but here's basically what he's saying. Competing with my desire to be a righteous person is my desire to commit sin. And when I sin, which I, I will, I'm still accountable for that sin. This is, this is not Paul saying, I, I get my get-out-of-jail-free card so everything's cool. What he's saying is, when I sin, I'm still accountable, but in Christ, my sin is not who I am. It's not my identity. If we go back to this core definition that we've been working from in Genesis, from Genesis 2.24, where it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's focus on that first phrase, for this reason. For what reason? What are we talking about here? There is no specific reason in the previous passage. He's talking about the entire narrative. For this reason, because all of these things happened, because we were created, because we were placed here with a purpose, because we were commissioned to care for the creation, because masculinity was found incomplete in the creation, because the feminine was created as the perfect opposite compatible for the masculine, because that incomplete was made truly good for this reason. A man will leave the household of his birth he will form a new household by bonding himself to his wife. And as an expression of all of this, the two will become one flesh. Now, culture has made human sexuality central to who we are. It's part of the definition of who we are. Where does the biblical narrative put it? It's there, but it's at the end. It's the consequence. It's what happens after all these other things take place. More important things take place that define who we are. Here is the truth. The core of human identity is our divine origin and connection. This is who we are. We cannot expect non-believers to embrace this ideology, but as believers, we really need to get this straight. What we want at any given point in life, that is not who we are. That is what we are left with when we abandon God and leave Him out of the definition of things. You know why we're inventing new terminology every day to describe orientations and identities in our culture? It's because 
we are practicing the idolatry of self. We have left God out of the definition, and all that we have to go to as authority is how I think, how I feel, and what I desire. And as desires are as diverse as people are, we have to keep creating new identities to describe them. What I want and what I feel is who I am. Christians who are held captive by this same ideology, this same deception, have a tendency to treat certain sexual sins with a deep contempt. Why? Because we believe that a person is what they desire. And so all we see is our perception of sin, not not the image of God upon them. But our sins, our desires, our temptations, these things are not who we are. Created and loved by God is who we are. And it's that relationship that we can have with God that actually defines our identity. To know God and to be known by God is the source of human identity. We say, wait a minute, what if I don't have that relationship? What if that relationship's been lost? I have really good news for you. That's the whole reason that we're here. That's the whole gospel message. That relationship that's been lost can be restored, and the identity that you're supposed to have because of that relationship can come back to you because Jesus died for your sins to make it possible. Another deceptive philosophy that follows this one is a questioning the veracity of sexual identification or orientation is pathological and bigoted. That's a really big-worded way of saying this, but you know what I'm talking about. If you question the cultural orthodoxy right now around homosexuality, transsexuality, or whatever other form of sexuality you want to uh, fill in the blank with, you know that pretty quickly you will be labeled as a hater and a homophobe. You can just kind of expect it. You expect it not simply because the people on the other side of that debate are bad people. You can expect it because this is the direction that the entire culture has gone, particularly in the age of social media. This is how we handle everything. Remember last year when we were getting ready to shut down the country, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, all that stuff? I had some questions. I bet a lot of you had questions. Like, what exactly is the point of what we're doing? How's this going to work out? I had questions. You lock up healthy people? Is that, is that a good strategy? I'm not sure. I was asking questions. At that point, you might remember, Phelps County had two unconfirmed cases. So the big question in my mind is, if we shut down with two unconfirmed cases, What does the level have to be at for us to open back up again? And nobody was answering these questions. So I posted some of my concerns on my Facebook profile. And people who've known me for decades commented back to me, 
you care more about money than people's lives. Really? That you know me. You know the commitments I've made. You know the life that I've lived. You really believe I care more about money than people's lives? Of course, the irony of that is my job was never in danger. I was concerned about my friends and neighbors who would be out of work. But I was just asking a question. Do they really believe that about me? No, of course not. That's not the point. The point is to shut down any dialogue. The point is we don't want to have a conversation. And so we're going to jump to attacking your character. And this is what we do with every issue. Attack the person. It is a strategy that we use when we either don't have or can't be bothered to make a rational argument. Dave Foster and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. It used to be common knowledge in debate circles that the first person who mentions Hitler loses the debate. And why is that? Because when you mention Hitler, essentially what you're going to is what we call an ad hominem attack. You have left the debate process of raising rational arguments, and you're just going to compare your opponent to the most evil thing you can think of, and the shock value of that will shut down the whole conversation. Historian Tom Holland makes this really interesting observation in a recent interview that up until World War II, American society largely looked to the righteousness of Jesus for a, a, a moral construct. Even if you weren't a believer, even if you weren't a member of the church, even if you weren't a even if you were an atheist, everybody sort of adopted this idea that Jesus is our example of what really good people look like. And so the righteousness of Jesus is the standard. After World War II, it's no longer about what the righteous standard is, it's about how terrible Hitler was. And so everything is relative to the evil of Hitler. And you think about how prevalent this is in our culture. How often do Nazis come up? And we haven't seen a Nazi for a long time, but Nazis come up in American conversation constantly. And it doesn't matter what your ideology is. Everybody sort of buys into this. We have uh, feminazis. We have mask Nazis. We have schoolyard Nazis. We even have soup Nazis. We've got a Nazi for everything. What is that about? You know how terrible what the Nazis did was? Why do we apply this horrible metaphor to every disagreement? Well, it's because we're not defining righteousness by what is righteous. We're defining righteousness by what is evil. And so anything that we perceive to be the opposite of that evil is now good. And therefore, anyone who disagrees with me has now associated themselves with the ultimate evil. And it comes out in all kinds of forms. You'll hear this terminology in the culture used for every group, 
on every point of the political and social spectrum. They're Nazis, they're brown shirts, they're fascists, they're racists, they're bigots, they're deniers, or they're phobic. Phobic, of course, is meant to pathologize those who disagree with us. That's why everything's a phobia now. We don't actually have an intense fear of these people groups. We just get labeled as being phobic because it makes us seem like we're pathological. We're nuts. We're crazy to believe what we believe. And so simply by stating this very biblical view that human sexuality is meant for a married man and woman, I become a hater and a homophobe. Why? Well, because we've determined that our sexuality defines our identity. And beyond that, we're deeply invested in the immutable nature of that identity. It can't change. We were, to use the vernacular, born that way. Everybody's born that way. We're deeply invested in this because we think that it gives some credibility to the position. And the majority of Westerners actually believe at this point that these sexual minorities are genetically determined, that they are immutable, unchangeable. And quite recently, a survey indicated that the American public believes that 20% of all humanity falls into one of these minority categories. Well, the evidence is quite different. Evidence doesn't really matter at this point, but the evidence suggests that our falling into these, so, these sexual minority categories, homosexuality, transsexuality, and so forth, is more social than biological, that it t tends to change over time and can change in a therapeutic setting far from what we have been told about it. And that it's not consistent across cultures. In some cultures around the world, there is very little homosexuality, and uh, in some, there appears to be none at all. Cultures where there's no particular uh, moral prescription against it, they just have no concept. And so these beliefs are broadly held by the American public are not remotely accurate and yet they are very much within the scope of this cultural orthodoxy. In other words, these are all things that it's acceptable for us to believe, acceptable for us to say out loud. We're invested in them being this way because the more common it is, then we think the more normal it is. And the more normal means it's natural. And if we're born this way, it's immutable. And you would have to be then a hateful homophobe to come to any different conclusion. Now, let me just pause here because I want to acknowledge that these groups, these sexual minorities, have been miserably treated by the church. 
The church has too often treated homosexuals as modern-day lepers, has treated their temptations and their sins as somehow more caustic, more terrible than our own. And of course, one of the big gripes in the culture about the Christian view of human sexuality is that some Christians have engaged in what is uh, referred to as reparative therapy. The reality is that most reparative therapies are not therapeutic at all. Uh, they are not designed by professionals, and they are not designed by people who've really uh, tried to understand what's going on. I can tell you uh, that I have had people in my counseling practice who had same-sex attractions that they did not want, and they were able to largely overcome them. That is possible. And the data backs that up. The research backs that up. The problem is a lot of these Christian ministries that were created to address the problem oversimplified it and even, um, even engaged it in a way that was shaming and cruel. This is our history. This is our legacy that, that we have to overcome. We focus exclusively on desires that we don't have and therefore find very easy to judge in others. We tend to be more destructive than helpful. And rather than focusing on the value and the identity of the individual, as someone who's created by God in his image and has inherent value because of it. On the other hand, Christians in recent uh, months and years trying to distance themselves from these terrible mistakes that we've made tend to err on the side of compassion. So I have dear Christian friends who will post things, memes again, because memes will solve all the world's problems, like, Love is love. Sounds great, doesn't it? Who could argue with the logic of that? Except that, do we really sexualize every love that we have? We're already putting limits on that. It's a question of where those limits should be. Should they be where Scripture says or where the culture says? Do we really act on every desire that we have? I had the privilege when we were in Denver to get to know a, a really fantastic ministry in downtown Denver that, that deals with uh, uh, really all kinds of sexual issues. Um, the name of the organization is called Where Grace Abounds. And I really love their, their slogan. Their uh, at the top of their webpage, 100% grace, 100% truth, no compromise. This is what we're called to as a church. Not to compromise the truth for people to make them feel more comfortable, but also not to engage in this kind of shaming and, and, and judgment that uh, damages people rather than building them up. The truth is, the Christian compassion requires that we prioritize the sacred and natural reality of the individual. See, when we read the creation story, human sexuality and gender are sacred 
and natural things. They are sacred because we are designed by God as man and woman, and our sexuality is designed for a specific context of a marriage between a man and a woman. They are natural because we are created with a compatible physicality that has the potential for procreation. Incidentally, that is a reasonable definition of natural no matter where you're coming from. Whether you're a... uh, Whether you're an atheistic evolutionist or a Bible-thumping creationist, a very reasonable definition of natural is that which has procreative potential. In defense of the creation, Paul appeals to both of these things, to the sacred and the natural. He says it's because the world has denied the creator and taken up with idols in his place, in Romans 1, 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And Paul then goes on to describe all manner of unrighteousness that emerges from this dynamic. So if you think you were off the hook because you don't have that particular temptation, Paul says, nope, you're all in the same boat. When we deny God, when we leave him out of the picture, when we worship things other than God, we end up with this distorted view of the creation and we end up with all of this brokenness. As a Christian, it is not my right nor is it my responsibility to judge the world or try to direct the world's behavior. The love and compassion of Jesus simply call upon me to see the image of the Creator God in all the people that I encounter. But it is not compassion to accept unnatural and profane things as sacred and true things. We do no one any favors by playing that game. And finally, deceptive philosophy that concerns me perhaps most of all those that we encounter in the culture right now. To break the hold of sexual puritanism, we must educate children in sexual diversity from an early age. The idolatry of self that we're using to define our sexual identity and our identity beyond that rejects any kind of normalization. The very idea, the very concept of normal is offensive and triggering and traumatic because it suggests that anybody who's not normal is abnormal. Here's the part that we're not talking about as a culture. The absence of norms is also deeply traumatic. We cannot raise children in an atmosphere of chaos and expect them to emerge healthy from the process. If there is a line to be drawn, if there is a line that Christians need to draw in this country around these issues, 
I think that line is around innocent children. We are in the midst of a grand social experiment in which chaos is the new norm, in which no one knows what gender you are or what your sexuality will look like until you get old enough to pronounce it to us. Where Christian morality is not only considered irrelevant, but is actually viewed as an enemy of healthy human sexuality. Where we constantly have to invent new words and assign new pronouns in order to make deceptive things look as if they could be true. An experiment in which a cult, this cultural orthodoxy is showing up in school curriculum. It's showing up at reading time at the library. It's showing up in children's cartoons, for heaven's sake. It's everywhere. A social experiment in which a child who firmly believes with deep conviction that monsters live under her bed is considered capable of announcing her gender to the world and the world must comply with whatever conclusion she has reached. An experiment in which middle schoolers are now regularly making pronouncements about their sexual identity. Let me just look at this from a different perspective. When I started my professional career, I was working with at-risk youth. These kids would come through the door from all kinds of horrific situations, and we would have to very quickly assess what was going on with them and how we might best serve them. One thing we knew with great confidence is a child who came through the door talking about their sexuality and the sexuality of others a child who was flirtatious, a child who was playing sexual games or uh, overly concerned, fascinated, obsessed with sexuality, that child was what we called sexualized, and we could assume that they had been abused at some point. We could assume that because it is not normal for children to be concerned about these things. It is not normal. It's not even acceptable. And yet we have not only tried to normalize it, we've actually championed the practice of making sure that children are exposed to these things. And here's the truth. To burden children with sexual information they are not prepared to process is an abusive indoctrination. It's not culture building. It's not people making. It's sick. Now, we just yesterday honored thousands of people who fell to their deaths, who died on a day of national tragedy 20 years ago. Hard to believe, right? Those of you who, who were alive then and remember that, hard to believe it's been 20 years. Folks, I have a very deep concern that 20 years from now, we will be mourning, we will be lamenting millions who suffered at the hands of this sick social experiment we're currently conducting. 
This is the line in the sand that Christians have to draw. What adults do is up to them. They do not have the right to indoctrinate our children in what they want to do and be. The next passage in Colossians is going to lead us into a section on children and parenting. Parents, I just want to tell you, this might be more critical than it ever has been. Our responsibility to protect the innocence of our children is matched only by a need for us to proactively and intentionally teach them about what is sacred and what is natural. To do so in example as much as, if not more than, with words. And this is what all of our children need to know. That who we are, who we are, is not rooted in what we want. Who we are is rooted in the Creator. And the Creator's design is perfect. No matter how the world maligns, no matter what the culture tells you about it, the Creator's design is perfect, and we are not ashamed of it. That the brokenness of humanity is what undermines His perfect design and makes it unworkable. Not a flaw in the character or mind of God. And that the hope that we have is in knowing and being known by the Creator. And we have that hope in Jesus Christ who frees us finally from the sin that would define us. <laughs>